0: Again. Hello. Yeah, this weather's been insane. The other day, I was out there wearing, you know, long pants and a jacket. Today, I'm out there in, like, a T-shirt and shorts, and I got the air conditioner on. I'm like, what the hell?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. last night was chilly, too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, last couple of evenings, I was like, I'm going to put the heat on. Fuck it, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, uh, yeah, today hit, I don't know, whatever, 79, 80. And probably tomorrow, too, it's going to be full, like they say. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I heard we were approaching like a nineteen forty seven high today. Like nineteen forty seven, holy
1: shit. What was that? So eighty
0: what? I think it was like eighty straight up. Shh. Oh, <laughs> Even so. Even so. Alright, let's go. Alright. Listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Gold mine your source for all things wild and wonderful the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Questions with an Enigma, the films of Stanley Kubrick. Only year on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Weird Scenes Inside the Gold mine your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Stanley Kubrick on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, good evening and welcome to what I believe is the seventh episode of the tenth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight... Born and raised in the Bronx, Stanley Kubrick started off as a photographer for magazines noted for such like look, and that's something that carried through in most dramatic fashion in his subsequent film career. Almost uniquely in Hollywood, he managed to move from totally self-produced outsider cinema to decades funded by more traditional channels and yet otherwise entirely self-directed, produced, scripted, and more. The man managed to have a cottage industry for his films, allowing for even more quirks and control over the final product than even much-fated or tourist directors like Hitchcock have ever really been able to claim. And yet, for all that financial and distribution advantage and personal control, he really seemed to choose some questionable material to tackle, and while much faded with awards and accolades, delivered a stream of very rocky pictures, more head-scratching and visually sumptuous misses than enduring hits. His demanding nature led to many a conflict with his cast, and where most directors of his era easily produced twice, if not three times as many films within the same span of time, he ultimately only dropped a handful of films, whose ultimate merit is kind of all over the map. Ultimately, all he left was was a trio of awkward no-budget crime films in the 50s, a few scandalous oddies in the 60s and very early 70s, one dour historical that lacked either enough erotic or comic content to link it to the trend, a much-beloved if unusual horror film of sorts, and literally one film each in its two final decades, one attempt to tackle the then-David Gore Vietnam reminiscence, and one seemingly decadent erotic horror that attaches the expected spice to the tantal occult skein of films like The Order, to the ice-storm-like loss of passion in a marriage, and how a trip to the edge and near misses with realistic consequences, like nearly spending the night with an HIV-positive partner, bring a strained couple back home to each other. So join us tonight as we talk one of the most praised yet controversial, and ultimately in most ways quite spotty directors in American cinema, the one and only Stanley Kubrick, right here on Weird Scenes. So, uh, like I said, I am Doc Savage, and with me is the maven of sleaze and the virago of vituperativeness, Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis.
1: Hello there, my co-host. Yeah, I don't know how sleazy we're going to get tonight, but never know with this show. we got the leader on the menu, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I, I've been curious to, to tackle Stanley Kubrick, because he's certainly like the biggest question mark in odd directorial... Cinematic hierarchy. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's not just me saying these words like Kubrickian. It's already it's already in it's in, it's in the film language. You There's know, like
0: lexicon,
1: yeah, it's yeah, a lexicon. It's it's like you oh, know, oh, this person has a Kubrickian approach or blah blah blah. I've seen it. I've actually seen it written. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. Yes, as you said, he hasn't had a lot of films, and, and after 1968, there's uh, maybe less 10. but uh, we have some interesting things to say about
0: those. Yeah. So where do you want to begin? I actually began pretty far back with Fear and Desire, 1953. Okay. Things kick off not with a bang, but with a bit of a whimper. Kubrick enlists a high school pal to write a rather overwrought and trite slice of emo angst, a full-on high school lit club examination of war, and man's inhumanity to man. Did I mention it's only an hour long? Or that there are really only three characters this revolves around, one of whom doesn't even say a word? Sure enough, the head from The Brain That Wouldn't Die, the one that controls all the severed arms on the wall that isn't a cool horror film with The Frozen Dead, is a peasant local who runs afoul of some existential GIs on the verge of a nervous breakdown. The one who delivers a scenery-chewing soliloquy to her before coming on to her Brett Kavanaugh style and setting her free only to be shocked she'd run like hell thereafter is Bob and Carol and Ted Now's and author-director Paul Mazursky here proving one he who's better utilized behind the camera than in front of one. What an <laughs> embarrassment. <laughs> Far more subdued is a fellow we'll talk next film, Frank Silvera, but he's hardly Oscar territory either. It's only an hour long, but it feels longer. No wonder he spent decades as a lost film, with Kubrick himself supposedly going around, buying up and burning all available prints. I agree, Stan.
1: Uh, it's, a f- it's always fun to see somebody's earlier work, even if it takes you decades to see it. Yeah, it's like 60 minutes long, more or less. Yeah, I agree, Mazursky. See, I've seen over the years, i see seen Mazurski in a number of things, in the uh, role of an actor. I don't know, here, you know, there, whatever. Miss Mars is better. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, it's a. What's weird about it is it's a short, low budget independent film, distributed by Joseph Barson, anybody who used to hound. The Deuce, Forty Second Street, Times Square, might be familiar to. I think this thing got retitled many times. They they had no qualms about appearing in an the black or white movie with like they stripped her alive and killed her. You know, some something from Italy or Germany, and you would like what the fuck is this? You know, it's an old movie from the early fifties, and um, very very. Hard to see in some recent years. It's okay. It's neither here nor there. I, I think after doing a couple of short films, Kubrick was trying to find his way. Mm-hmm. I hate to say that. You know, because it's got narration. It's early 1950s. I like that Frank Silvera's in this because he was a, a, an actor. I thought physically, pictorially, it was very interesting to watch.
0: But it's just, it's not
1: a great film, I'm no fan of this film, but I'm, I'm glad you came
0: out with it, yeah. So, for his second film, control Freak, Kubrick goes so far as to fire the one upgrade he made, his Sink Sound Man. Opting rather ostentatiously to return to post-sink, uh, the Creeping Terror, Stan hit up a local druggist for financing, as well as tapping a rich uncle for tens of thousands to get this one off the ground. We're talking about Killer's Kiss, 1955. The plot of this one is seriously thin on the ground, even for the most of noir, and so badly acted by one of its principles, I kept expecting it all to be a setup, when it was actually meant to be taken with a straight face. A mug-jobber of a boxer is aging out, despite some definite promise he never holds together in major title bouts, and his record's pretty bad. He lives in a dingy tenement where, rather than replace a broken window, they just adjust the metal frame to cover the crack, and apparently nobody believes in shades, despite living right across from each other in adjoining buildings, which are, by the way, easily accessible via rooftop stairwells, which our hero then uses several times for this purpose. Across the way and mutually peeping on the neighbors is the 40s and 50s version of a hooker, one of those washed-up, depressive, ten cent dance taxi dancers. They both seem to have designs on each other, but don't act on it until her boyfriend-slash-boss, who seems to be plotting something amidst all his bluster and overacting, pushes them together. Or is that really supposed to be accidental? Naive film writing paired with bad acting is the only excuse, if, as appears to be the case, the latter is true. Now that they're together and are ham actors on the outs, he gets to play He overdoing the drunk bit Sneering and glowering without actually doing anything to either of them until she decides to join him working a relative's farm. When she goes to pick her last checkup, she gets kidnapped and he gets killed. But there's a mistake, and it's his manager also there to give up our hero's share of the take on his last bout. Now she's missing, and our man looks guilty of killing his boss. But again, Kubik's dicey script foils expectations because he's cleared right away off screen and out to find and free his sardonic lady friend, during which he kills the overactor. But again, he's exonerated immediately off screen and goes to the train station to head to the farm alone. But wait, one last fail on the noir checklist, because she comes running to join him, and with a tiny cast of literal no-names, Killer's Kiss features the sole appearance of one Irene Kane, Annie E., Chris Chase, the author of several cheesy Hollywood bios on lesser lights like Alan King, Josephine Baker, and wait for it, Betty Ford, more famous for being a drunk than a first lady. Not to be outdone, our leading man is a Jamie Smith, big name enough, who cameoed in random episodes of under a dozen forgotten 1950s Kinescope TV shows before more or less packing it in here. The biggest quote name is Frank Silvera, a law school dropout whose biggest claim to fame were bit parts in films like The Greatest Theory Ever Told, Mutiny on the Bounty, and Guns of the Magnificent Seven. It's a seriously no-budget bottom scraper, saved mainly by its amazing noir-rest cinematography, and how it captures the New York City of the era in ways you don't even get in regional sexploitation of the day, especially some dazzling shots of what I thought was Grand Central Station, but it was actually the long-since demolished Penn Station, Times Square, and I believe the Manhattan Bridge off Canal Street from the Brooklyn side, plus some more rooftop chase sequences than an episode of the Nicholas Hammond Amazing Spider-Man series ever had, which is still, by the way, absurdly not on DVD or blue. Somebody get on that. Kubrick's visuals, and notably this is one of the only films he's credited as cinematographer for as well, are simply gorgeous in all their grittiness, with those late-night and rain-slick streets and rooftops being particularly vibrant, and this makes the film succeed, despite it's a best rather iffy small cast, for most of whom this is their only film and or last TV role, and the rather childishly basic, oddly optimistic script. Even so, this one did turn out to be one of my favorites in his filmography. So, uh, very mixed verdict. Poor script, cheesy acting, but it works, and it works pretty well. <laughs> so, what do you think?
1: Oh, I, I, I agree with you on this one. I, I, I'm i always torn by this film because I was always thinking, what with better actors could he have achieved? Exactly. But, but you know, it's this early in his. And his filmography, and it's um, yeah, you know, he's born and bred in the Bronx, if I'm correct, yeah. and so he has that real hardcore, hardcore New Yorker thing. He 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 lived there, he grew up there, and he, he translates well. I agree with you. I mean, this is some of the best looking for the time period stuff that we've seen, you know. Even documentaries sometimes kind of cheat on the look of certain areas of time gone, uh, times gone by. And uh, he's very good. Yes, probably one of the few times he was even his own cinematographer, cameraman. And it's a brief 60-something minutes. And still, it's packed with a lot of stuff. It's needlessly overplotted. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, the, the actors are adequate I, to me, but um, at the same time, it does reveal a, how do I say, and this is going to come up a lot with this guy. It reveals a certain attention to details mm-hmm. that normally most people would, be, uh, would, would, would gloss over. Most, most directors would gloss over he he does have an eye for certain things and it's like okay and we'll learn later on in his in his filmography we, we may never know what makes what made Stanley Kubrick check as a filmmaker but there are certain things that, that, that he had definitely weird psyche going on oh
0: yeah
1: and and, and but for the time period, 1955, New York gritty, but a hardcore gritty, but 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 yeah, I agree. I mean there, there's certainly some stuff in here visually you want to be seeing like some something weird video stuff. I mean, just gorgeous looking and really captures
0: the drama of walking around in New York at that time. So next up, simultaneously a step up and a step down is The Killing, a character actor extravaganza of a noir heist film that once again manages to miss the point with a template plot showing audiences even slightly familiar with such productions groaning and face bombing. A gangster figures out one last big score, a racetrack robbery that needs several key players Ocean's Eleven style. The problem is, the key teller role is filled by shaky-baked Elisha Cook Jr. of House on Haunted Hill fame among dozens of other films requiring a nervous drunk, <laughs> a nervous drunk scared of ghosts, or edgy thug with an itchy trigger finger and using the tingler, you know the idea. He might even been in the Ghost of Mr. Chicken, for God's sakes. <laughs> God, he was always drunk, was yeah, yeah, drunk and scared. He's stuck with blowsy old Marie Windsor as a wife, and she's clearly uninterested in anything he's got to offer, except the money this job promises. Once she finally buys that something really is going down, she accuses in her sleazy young boyfriend of rob everybody of their prize. Other things go randomly wrong, like how the black guy just being friendly to weirdo hitman Timothy Carey, who talks through his clenched teeth throughout, winds up overstaying his welcome, gets called a slur out of the blue, and tosses the lucky horseshoe he was trying to give the guy... To where it winds up giving him a flat and getting him killed in the shootout or the boyfriend who manages to kill off most of the heist crew only to be gunned down by Elisha Cook who then kills his wife or how our hero and his with you no matter what girl and noir standby Colleen Gray from Touch of Evil Nightmare Alley Kansas City Confidential among others tries to skip town with the takings only to see it blow down the airport under the jet engines it's a downer alright but it fails both as a noir and a heist film there's simply not enough going on, none of the twists and turns of the noir or the intricacies of planning and execution of Heists heist film. It's just awkward, and despite the huge upgrade in cast and budget, isn't a pimple on the ass of killer's kiss, which was a much more visual and well-executed film for all its flaws? Maybe that's why he didn't bother producing this one.
1: Visually, it looks very interesting. Lucian Ballard, who was the director of photography, who did a lot of things, it's, it's almost like Kubrick although as I just said he did a lot of things he didn't work continuously but when he did work as a DP, he did some visually very spectacular work in later years here we're still back in the gritty now we're in the mid to late 50s and uh I think he was taking Kubrick's blueprint from his from Kubrick's last film on how to shoot this one <laughs> Has, like as you said, you know, uh, this really interesting cast. He's, he's really upgraded from like, the last two pictures. You know, we got Sterling Hayden, Colleen Gray, Vince Edwards, Elijah JC Flippin, very familiar face, TV and some films, Marie Windsor, uh, Tim Carey, Joe Turkle, you know, forever will be remembered for Runner, much less all the films he did back in the 50s and 60s. But um, I'm not a huge fan of this film, but this movie has a lot of followers and it always befuddles me. Why? It, it's, it's To me, it's not focused enough. Yeah. It's almost like somebody said, we're going to give you a much, and they did, much, much larger budget. And he has a good DP, a good uh, cinematographer. But you know what also hurts this film is the narration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Films of this era, when they have narration, but they're not, they're not, how do I say this? But they're not super low budget films. Let's say, uh, you know, not not to uh, to denigrate them, but not not like SWV quality, you know, not like uh, exploitation yeah. movies, you know. It's just really weird when you see a film which is supposed to be a higher movie with narration sometimes. like, oh, don't surely Hayden didn't find his way yet. And Vince Edwards didn't find his way yet. But I'm glad to see them in this early film. Not a, a Kubrick favorite of mine, although there are a lot of people who like him. Mm-hmm. Pat's glory. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I wanted to say this. <sighs> Gosh. So, 1957, Stanley Kubrick writes and directs Paths of Glory, uh, along with uh, Jim Thompson, who, who wrote some noir type th- uh, thrillers, and it was a anti-war story about French soldiers who refused to enter into a suicidal attack and were therefore were charged with cowardice, and there was a whole court martial thing going on. And this movie has. An interesting cast. We have uh, Kirk Douglas, Ralph Meeker, but he was actually, you know, doing good stuff. Adolphe Menjoo, uh Richard Anderson, you know, um, uh, what the fuck, uh, Lee Major's show, was that? Six um, you know, Man. Yes, Six Million Dollar Man. Joe Turkle again. Timothy Carey again. Also, Kubik, <laughs> Cass's wife as a German singer. But, and it was produced, co-produced by, 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 uh. Kirk Douglas, this is like one of the most powerful anti-war movies. Um, they gave him almost a million-dollar budget, short of 90 minutes, released on Christmas, uh, 1957 by United Artists. Hey, let's make a, a depressing anti-war movie and release it. For Christmas. Uh, for, yeah, for Christmas. So, you know, and, and Kirk Douglas uses his Briner Productions Productions, B-R-Y-N-A, to co-produce this, and it was just during its initial time of release, everybody hated it. Like, you know, at the time, people weren't ready for anti-war film. And it probably, I think, wasn't really appreciated until the Vietnam years. So it was, like, what, 10 years later, 12 years later. Uh, Douglas is very good. So probably yeah, The whole cast is very good. But it's still a downer film. It's very slow. It's very... Uh, I hate to say it's about some films, but you ever watch a movie where you feel beaten up watching it? And, and, and this is one. This is a really good movie, but it's, you feel beaten up watching this. And, and there's no, but this is a Kubrick thing. There's no good outcome. You don't come out happy. And there's a lot with the Stanley Kubrick psyche we will never know about because his a state. is uh, whoever's alive that's controlling his stuff is very very tight on a lot of this stuff. We don't know a lot about Stanley Kubrick, the man. And um, I, I, I gave him credit for giving him lots of my d d water Looks good. Supposed to be World War One, World War One. And uh, interestingly enough, that Kubrick or maybe it was Douglas, or whichever, didn't take the parts of the British or the U.S. that were aided in World War, War, World War I. We're centering on the French, because in a way, it's a, it's a way out. Yeah. Let's, let's go as hard as we can go, but we're, we're going to tell the, the French version of the story. I, I liked it, but it was very
0: fucking with my Now we'll go to Sparks. So, we had talked this overhyped, wildly homoerotic faux Bible film in our <laughs> Tony <laughs> Curtis show, but it's worth noting that Kubrick neither wrote or produced this one, so it may have been a jobbing work for hire rather than one of his usual control freak passion projects. I really have nothing to add from what I said last time, so I refer the listener back to the earlier show for some laughs at its expense. How about you?
1: <laughs> well, if you listen to that show, you will hear me reiterate that I love Spartacus. <laughs> I like you. Dalton
0: Trombo.
1: Uh, Dalton Trombo wrote the screenplay. What a fucking cast.
0: <laughs> Kirk Douglas. It's like the original YMCA, that one scene. <laughs> Y-M-C-A. You gotta come on See, we're getting this. Uh, Kirk Douglas, Lawrence
1: Olivier, Gene Simmons, who oh, I never thought was hot until I saw this film. I was like, mm. oh, you like that uh, right
0: wing prick in his big tongue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Charles Long, Peter Oostedov, Tony Curtis, who you belittled, who I thought was
0: really magnificent, uh, John Gavin, uh, Nita Falk,
1: who I remember
0: some things, John Ireland, Herbert Long. I like, uh, can even address the difference between the Gene Simmonses here? <laughs> I didn't get to that Harold
1: yeah. uh, J. Stone, which, who? Not which, but who people would think was a joke for a long time. This was probably one of the best things he ever did. Woody J. Strode, the man, is in this. Um, John Hoyt. Well, that's another story. It's just, I think this is one of the best epic films ever made. Yes, Cooper didn't. I did Dalton Trumbo, who was... Uh, who was that guy... That went into the Senate and said, these people, these artists are communists. Who is was his name? Oh, yeah. What, you talking about McCarthyism? Yeah, McCarthy. McCarthy called out Dalton Trumbo. Yeah. Dalton Trumbo was banned. Yeah, blacklisted. Thank you. I'm sorry. Uh, Dalton Trumbo was blacklisted. And then Kirk, who produced this film on his Briner thing, got Dalton Trumbo to write the screenplay. Yes, this is a word for hire for Kubrick. But needless to say, it's, it's bizarre as fuck. It's long, it's got these strange homoerotic overtones for mm-hmm. the time period, 1960, and, and I, I, I always thought, it's one of Kirk Douglas's strongest roles, personally. No kidding. And I always thought Tony Curtis was quite good in it, because as Antoninus, you know, because at this time period, Tony and we did a whole show on Tony. We love Tony. We do. We love Tony. But this is still early Tony, so he was finding his way in Hollywood, that and was it was. A problem, yeah. and, and but it, they gave him a really tough part to play. They gave him a. Uh, they gave him. A, they, gave him a, they gave him a monologue soloquey, mm-hmm. you remember that? Yep. And they got a monologue, and they gave they also wrote his role with, I uh, wish they had the cut in the original version, with Olivier. Um, they gave him a role with slightly homoerotic overtones. Oh, slightly, going
0: there more than slightly. That, uh, that's, that's why he right. ran away. Come on. <laughs> and that one C. A. scene was pretty tight. <laughs> the balance.
1: I, I like this film. I think it's one of the strongest... Sort and sand. Well, see, here's the thing, though. This picture opened a little soft, and then it started
0: growing and growing and growing. It's fucking... <laughs> Even oh, that my. sounds loaded, what you just said. <laughs> growing and growing. Yes, it's soft, and then grow. it keeps growing and growing. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, though. This
1: 1960 film about the uh, slave uprising to the Roman conquerors, you are know, like... Uh, who did this most recently? Ridley Scott. And he, he wants to revisit it. Well, what, a fat Russell Crowe?
0: Uh, I, I like Russell, but come on, dude. The you um, of his generation. Yes, yes. But, no, but, he, no, he's going to be no, pissing in no. wine bottles on a plane pretty soon. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and being the bikini whale on the beach. Actually, there was no bikini with Depardieu. Hmm. <laughs>
1: No, but I, I think Gladiator was a pretty good movie. It's also uh uh in a way in a way it was it was uh, you could felt the the iconography of Spartacus in Gladiator, the really Scottville.
0: Seriously. Um even that sounds somewhat rock.
1: You can't okay. get away from it, man. Okay. Okay. It just okay. keeps okay. going back for, there. <laughs> for our gay friends, these guys wine cloths, and some of them are hung. So if you want to watch Spartacus, you never did.
0: Yes, but you oh, have Oh, come on. Part- then that, that like a number one on the Peplum list. You know they love Peplum. <laughs> I like Peplum, but hey. I like Peplum, anyway. too. I mean. <laughs> Spartacus
1: is like, oh. So the point I was trying to make before we started going to places I didn't <laughs> want to go to really um, was after Spartacus, Josephine Levine did the two Hercules movies, with Steve Reeves and Steve Reeves, and there was a whole explosion for the next six years of Hercules, Ulysses. We haven't done a show on these things. All these muscle man movies coming out of Italy, mm-hmm. and uh, in a way, I think Levine and De Laurentiis produced uh, Hercules, the first one with mm-hmm. Steve Reeves. probably wasn't the precursor to all that. It was probably Spartacus. Because it was a success. Mm -hmm. Being how fucked up Kubrick is, two years later, his next movie is very strange.
0: Yeah, he keeps pushing controversies. Maybe this is the start of his really trying to be controversial. He puts out this highly homoerotic pseudo-Bible film that's not a Bible film at all about revolutions and God knows what else. And really, really loaded imagery and subtext and whatever. And then a couple years later, what does he go to? Lolita, Vladimir Nabokov's novel. What could have been a strangely transgressive, if quite politically incorrect film, in a less repressive environment, turns into a cheesy, even boring, boulderization of a novel that somehow managed to be scandalous. If Francois Sagan could get away with Bonjour Tristez, and Gainsbourg, the admittedly tasteless, it likely delivered to his <laughs> nose to the audience, Lemon Incest, both the record and the film, which are two different animals, by the way, then why would an accepted success to Scandal, like Nabokov's Lolita, wind up so chased. The end result is James Mason hamming it up both less and more than usual, depending on the scene really. Moves into a bed and breakfast sort of homeroom rental situation. I gather that people did this back in more trusting days. I can't really picture it now, especially with taxation and zoning laws trying to get a cut. But he picks a place run by blowsy old widow Shelley Winters. Yes, sir. She's more in her Angela Lansbury mode here, but still recognizably her. Who, boy, would anyone ever sell? Wait a minute, you wouldn't do Shelley? Oh my God, not only crazy. <laughs> Come on. What's Even that- back then, when she was like you know an Angela Lansbury type, I'm like really, who would do that? <laughs> uh, you know, we're not even talking about the hold the kidding. Titanic from the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Throwing herself effusively at the guy within seconds of his ringing the doorbell for the first time. He has creeping designs on her young, bored, and quite honestly boring teenage daughter. So he takes the room even when Winter's ships are off to summer camp and drops a marry me or get out ultimatum which he's desperate enough to comply with. Things get silly when Winters discovers his diary, where he makes fun of her and makes clear his ankle bracelet-baiting intentions, and this so upsets her that she runs out into the street and gets run down by a passing car. Now left to pursue his ends without obstruction, he finds himself stymied by nosy neighbors, a creepy guy from her high school, and the sheer vapidity and flightiness of Melita herself. She eventually pulls a scam on him, and runs off with of what turns out to be that creepy guy, an established playwright in Bohemia who also banged Winters at one point. She apparently skipped town on him as well when he tried to star her in some something weird, stuffs exploitation films, only to wind up barefoot and pregnant Texas 2021 style with yet another guy and begging Mason for money, having no one to blame but his own fetish for underage meat for all this nonsense and hand wringing been dragging out for two and a half hours already. He heads back to find the playwright, a drunken Peter Sellers, and kills him because he got and lost what Mason had and lost, however Um, momentarily. Yeah, that makes sense, I think. What a stupid (laughs) fucking film. At least, if it were more blatant, it could have made a sleazy regional sex sexploiter. Or even something suggestive of grotty like Carol Baker's Baby Doll. Not that that one was particularly wonderful either, but at least it had that sweaty Tennessee Williams feel. This one's just icy, overlong, and both asexual and unfunny. Killer's Kiss aside, how did Cuba get his reputation again? This is another one he didn't produce. Phew, I hated this film. I always hated this film. Personally, I never liked this movie. Yeah.
1: And I didn't like the remake either. We're not discussing that tonight.
0: I never liked
1: this film because, well, personally, I don't like underage girls, unless they're on Ex-Hamster. <laughs> uh, and, and they're 18 or above, folks. Just to let you know. Uh, no, no, no. Seriously, seriously, I was just taking the piss out of this. Nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, Vladimir Nabokov. British Film Academy Film Awards, Mason Kubrick. Mason, Golden Globes. Mason, Peter Sellers, Winters. Nobody won. Sue Lyon won. Most Promising Newcomer. What the fuck does that mean? Um, I never liked this film because, okay, all right, let's be serious tonight. It's a tricky subject to do mm-hmm. stuff like this. And I actually read the book. I did read the book, the English language translation, which is very, uh, very uh, very accessible nowadays. When I mean, 10, 15, 20 years ago, because I was curious. I give props to uh, Peter Sellers for doing, for a guy who was primarily doing comedy, British comedy at the time, doing a quirky kind of hybrid of British comedy comedy drama at the time i give him props for going outside of his my and doing a role like this i mean whatever's going well later on we found out that peter sells fucked anything up. walk but <laughs> seriously if you know that come on yeah but uh but but professionally i, I give him props for doing something like this professionally at this time James Mason, too, was, like, so weird. Sue Lyon has always been a difficult character because, so she plays this role, but she's only done uh, maybe 10 or 15 films in her CV and her credits list. All of them are strange. It's almost like Lolita fucked her up. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I...
0: Personally? Carol Baker said that about Baby Doll. Baby Doll's a better film by far. But
1: yeah, Carol Baker said that about Baby Doll. And, and you know, like you're a young actress, you don't you do a role. We don't know what happened off screen. None of us do. But sometimes these roles take a lot out of an actor or actress, and they fuck them up professionally, psychologically, and, and personally. I. Never liked this film, I, I have to say. Interesting to Bond fans, James Bond fans, Lois Maxwell appears as well as sick Linder. But, uh, but then Kubrick
0: comes back with an even stranger movie. Yeah, this is another one's weird. All right, so 1964. Gentlemen, you can't fight here. This is the war room. The mid to late 60s were filled with stuff like this. Catch-22, failsafe. Hell, with the heating up of the Cold War under Reagan, these grim or black comic discussions of nuclear brinkmanship felt ripped right out of the headlines, and my favorite English teacher made us read these very books alongside similarly philosophical fare like The Stranger, Animal Farm, and Lord of the Flies. So here, with Dr. Strangelove, Kubrick takes a slight deviation from his usual full control, from script to direction and production, by downgrading the co-writer on this crush between the plot of Failsafe and the absurdist no-way-out comedy of Yossarian and Company, who always reminded me of... Country show on the fish and catch one mm-hmm. too. George C. Scott is a crazy jingoist military man, the creepy old guy from the killing, Sterling Hayden is the button pushing loon. Peter Sellers is his usual unfunny self as a brigadier less stewart type. <laughs> the US President and the Kermit the Frog voice wheelchair bound ex Nazi of the film title. Even Slim Pickens and James Earl Jones show up for a heartbeat, but it's mostly Sellers and Scott chewing up the furniture, carpets, curtains, and even the wallpaper. Just wait till Pickens rides the rocket like a rodeo cowboy ho-ho with hilarity and Sue, Did we mention it's all in a washed-out black-and-white? The only real highlight here is an all-too-brief scene with the fetching Tracy Reed falling out of a bikini in all the right places. Sadly, she didn't have much of a career appearing in Devils of Darkness, Casino Royale, the original one, and of all slap-and-tickle films, Percy. And here, she's reduced to being told by the crusty Amish father from Hardcore and the change on George C. Scott to masturbate till he can get back and finish her off. Gee, Mom, I got a job in a Kubrick film. Ooh, I'm not kidding either. Not even the usual Kubrickian flair for visual excess, and damn, all that found footage and cheap looking special effects. Seems to be a swipe from an Al Adamson production. One of those overpraised films of my youth that left me wondering what the fuck planet all these supposed cinephiles were living on. Only an hour and a half, but feels at least twice that long. What's your take?
1: Well, in 1999, the
0: United States Library
1: of Congress selected this film. <laughs> exactly preservation
0: of national no, drugs we smoking more than laced with <laughs> uh, yeah
1: it's funny i think you and i are are on the we're together with this but both of us are on the outs with like 98 percent of the critical uh yeah <laughs> it's true with the film with the film critical group here uh we're even talking about people who like stuff we like mm-hmm. i saw something where columbia who produced this film said uh to finance it, because Lolita did make money, and strangely enough, Peter Sellers announced that Roared, very weird movie, did make money. We never did a Sellers show, do we?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, they said they would finance this, finance this film if Sellers did at least a few major roles. Weird. It's a strange movie. It's it's coming off the almost linear, easy to follow Sparta. Of- Kubrick makes an anti-war movie in a time where anti-war movies are not appreciated because it's still too early,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and everybody's overacting and blustery. I mean, George C. Scott as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is like shouting. It's not a thing Scott usually would do.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, Patton seems to do compared to this. Kid. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. He he wasn't doing the shouting too much later. Sterling Hayden. Paranoid. Okay, well, certainly Haven's was only weird, fuck, but you know, and Wynn, uh, yo, yo, Slim Pickens, where the fuck? <laughs> uh, it's just, yo, it's
0: so weird, and and the the. Let's put it this way: Canadian bacon did this film better. <laughs> and, and Sellers, and Peter
1: Sellers, rolls from strange himself to the President of the United States, you know, with with an American accent. Oh, it's just so. Ah, so strange. No pun intended. And it's just like I don't know because it's a it's a war film. It's an anti well, it's an anti war film. But it's the most bizarre thing you might ever see. But it's a successful. No, not really. It did well surprisingly at the box office. But here's the thing. In retrospect, in retrospect, it's now considered like. This
0: masterpiece. You know that. Yeah, sure. I just can't believe it. it. it's one of those things that makes you sit back and you you plop yourself in a chair and you're dumbfounded and you're sitting there with your mouth hanging up and your eyes wide like and you're exhausted from just dealing with this fact that all these people out there think this utter piece of shit is like the greatest thing since sliced butter. It's like they found the golden chalice, you know, that they, they dug up the holy grail, they got Excalibur. Like what the fuck are you what are you looking at? I saw this. I sat I will. This.
1: I will admit to every 15 to 20 years, taking another look at this, uh, oh, yeah. partly
0: because, like, well, I'm older. Well, that's it. You, I do this as well. It's interesting you do this, too. When yeah. I get some kind of films like this that just baffle me, like, why do people love this? Like Spartacus, for example. Okay. I'll go back and sit there and watch it again, you know, every, say, 10 years, 15 years. Like, there has to be something. And sometimes my wife even remembers, like, why are you taking this one out again? You hated it. I'm like, you know, it's been another so many years. i got to reassess it. Everybody's still talking great about it. And I come out, and I'm like, yeah, it still sucks. <laughs> once oh, in a no. while, once in while, we find stuff. Guests. Come on, man. Once That's in a while, we find stuff on this show that you know, you'll know you get me to watch again or whatever. And okay. I was like, all right, I always thought this sucked, but this is actually really good. And sometimes it oh, yeah. happens on my own, like Jaws. I mentioned that last time. I yeah. really yeah. got into Jaws in the last couple of years. But you know, see, see, I told you, I told you. <laughs> but you know, it, it's just there's, there's so many of these films like this. I'm just like, what the hell is everybody smoking? What's wrong with everybody? Uh, whatever. All right, next move on to the biggie. Yes, so uh, the biggie comes around, and we're talking about four years later, and it seems almost like out of the blue. I mean, already he's starting to pick up bigger and stranger films, but seemingly out of nowhere, in 1968, Kubrick delivers what appears to remain his apotheosis that one universally cited masterstroke that defines him as an auteur cinema. And that, of course, is the world's first and most famous head film and perennial midnight movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey. His love of Japanese monster movies, specifically the headier anti-war ones like Warning from Space, remember the one with the giant starfish that twists from side to side while pontificating <laughs> the hearts of nuclear power? Led to the idea of directing a sci-fi film, but he didn't want his to be cheesy like the human vapor or the man-staring with the head grab the guy's arm. Uh, he, he wanted to do something he'd rarely seen before film, even in the heyday of the genre, which was the 1950s, proper hard SF. As such, what he wound up filming were some of the first major model sequences, and I mean those sort of awe-inspiring, grandiose slope pans across what appear to be vast distances of advanced technological hardware, but are really just complex-looking miniature and model work, familiar from later films like Alien, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Moonraker, and The Black Hole, just to name a few. It's always quite impressive, and actually a lot of them had the same director, as you pointed out last week, and this is definitely the first one of such. Further, he matched that with some innovative faux zero-gravity sequences where people walk up the walls and around the ceiling seamlessly, and his usual flair for stunning visuals. Even deep space can't mute the Kubrick color palette. He also aimed for an unusual sense of scientific realism in terms of what we've only just gleaned from the 1966 to 8 attempted lunar landings, which, remember, hadn't even fully succeeded yet. That was Apollo 11 which was next summer in 1969. Even going so far as to meet with Cosmos as Carl Sagan, the far less lowbrow forerunner to that, that pompous fool Neil deGrasse Tyson, to get his facts straight. Working in tandem with R.C.C. Clark, what at first seemed like another illustrated man scenario where Kubrick took a handful of Clark's short stories and was to pull them together as a single film, turned weird, with the two collaborating hand-in-hand on the script, then diverging wildly. Clark wrote a far wordier novel out of it, Kubrick developed what was practically a dialogue-free visual extravaganza, But both are telling the same ambiguous story of evolution and Vondoniken's Chariots of the Gods. The film starts off bizarrely with several minutes of black screen while cheesy Strauss waltzes play. And just when you think something's wrong with your player, the credits roll generic and quiet. A bunch of surprisingly well-crafted ape-suited Neanderthal types are beaten down by others and a wild cheetah until they run across a jet-black monolith. Poof! They learn to use simple tools, a bone as a weapon, and kill off their rivals. Evolution continues, and maybe these are the first Cro-Magnon or something like that, okay. Shift scenes now to the future, where Reginald Perrin himself, Leonard Rossiter, makes yet another Kubrick Kenya as one of the press or board members, questioning an ongoing loss of contact with a lunar mission that he's trying to keep on the down-low. He heads out with a small group to investigate, and it's the same damn monolith they dug up. When he tries to make a commemorative photo with the team in the monolith, he starts squealing like a bad carbon monoxide detector, presumably killing them all, change scene again. Now we're an hour into this nonsense. And it's Gary Lockwood, whose credits are limited to Wild in the Country, which we talk about in our Elvis show, and the weird kids movie The Magic Sword with Basil Rathbone, and Keir Dully, whose credits are limited to Black Christmas, and Sergio Salmo's Devil in the Brain, all getting their one big break as two aware astronauts on a trip to Jupiter. The others are in suspended animation, a la The Ark in Space. So, of course, they have to deal with a homicidal Cynthia computer, who decides to kill them off rather than potentially abort the mission. Finally, now there's another sequence, Survivor Dully, completes the mysterious mission objective to find where the other monoliths were sending signals to, and it's a huge one just orbiting out there in space around Jupiter. In the film's most discussed sequence, he winds up sucked into the thing, or wormholed somewhere else, where he lives alone as a middle-aged man, and then an old one, who reaches out for a nearby monolith at the end of his life, and begins anew as a big-eyed fetus heading for Earth. Whoa, what the fuck did we just see here? And with all this Nietzsche on the soundtrack, and also Spock Zarathustra, what was Kubrick saying? He's Aryan Nation with all this alien mean, Ubermensch come to set a straight shit? Obviously not, given all his other work, but the ambiguous tone set by all this leaves the film open to nearly any wild interpretation to clear to place on it. Just be sure to tag in Evolution, Alien, Gods, and Van Daniken and Nietzsche in there, and we pretty much have to hear you out. Regardless, it's a gorgeous film visually, weirdly oneric and dissociative enough to make it the perfect head film, it's hard to imagine too many bad trips out of this one passing the Neanderthal sequence. And if nothing else, both unusually thought-provoking and clearly an enormous influence on the subsequent decades' culture in science fiction, literature, film, television, comics, and even music, particularly the proggy or Jazz Fusion concept album into the things. I don't really like the film, but it's both beautiful and relaxing, and there's a lot to be said for that. Visually, it's stunning, and it's so peaceful in a way. Uh, there's really nothing else like it.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. There's nothing else like this film. Um, although they tried, I think came close at times so for 2010, the Peter Himes follow-up, which uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote. But uh, there's nothing quite like this movie. It's alienating and alien-esque and at the same time, very comforting. Yeah. Um It's it's the strangest fucking movie, man. I I remember. Okay, so keep this in the show because I remember way back in the early 70s, my dad was was doing porn, and and he had some actresses over to the house on occasion, you know, like get together, have some drinks, whatever. And uh, I can't remember one of them was Kim Pope or not, but you know, uh, I had this bicycle in my room. You know, I would take it downstairs in the elevator and ride the bicycle outside. Mm-hmm. She came in my room one day, and it's one of these actresses that did movies. She goes, did you see 2001? She's like a fucking spacehead. <laughs> I don't like No, but I, I you know, so, so was I, like nine, ten years old? So no, no, but I want to see it. She goes, let me tell you what it's all about. It was like a fucking acid head. I, I never forgot that conversation. It was very literate from a porn actress acid head. <laughs> and so,
0: um, <laughs> the weird things that happened in my head, but still. I used to have it, really literate conversations as a child with people from that era and that age. Uh, as far as I know, none of them were porn actresses, but. <laughs>
1: no, it's true. It was a porn
0: actress acid head.
1: No, I know like she was not
0: an acid. Even though, no,
1: she was happy too, but, you know, but it opened my eyes. Because when I did see it, I was like, "Wow!" And then years ago, I saw it that uh, were well, no longer, but one of New York's premier big giant theaters, the Ziegfeld. I saw it again. I said, you know, "Let me go see it again, just to, you know, like you said before, you know, reevaluate." And I was like, "Wow!" And I still don't fucking get it, but wow! <laughs> <laughs> and so I got the DVD and Blu-ray and. And every so often, I look at it, and I go, wow. And so, I interviewed Keir DeLay years ago, and we get to talking about this film. And uh, I spoke to Gary Lockwood, too, but he was more closed-mouthed about how it affected him as an actor and what he had to go through as an actor for Kubrick. But Keir DeLay is, like, pretty open. And he said, I don't know. I worked really hard, and that huge set, you know, like where he's doing that run. Yeah. He said that thing was rotating, and Kubrick would make them do multiple, multiple takes, which he's known for. We will, mm. as we go further on, we'll we'll find out that Kubrick would make people do as little, little, like *The shiny, little as 100, 150 takes.
0: Mm.
1: And Kier Delay couldn't really put into words what it was like, and so about. Five years ago, I interviewed DeLay and Daniel Rector, who played the ape in the opening uh, sequence of the film, together. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know, pretty much same questions. Like, and they're like, I don't know. It's so hard. It's in the past. But as an actor, I never forgot working in this movie. It's the hardest I ever worked. And you, you could almost see that. It's pretty much a one-man, two-man film. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's the most strange, bizarre opening film. It's like Kubrick was way beyond us at the time when he made this movie. I mean, <clears throat> extraterrestrial life, possibilities.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure what he was trying to get at, but it's fascinating. Yes,
1: I, I, there you go. That's the key word right there. The key sentence. I'm not sure, and I agree, I'm not sure what he was get at, getting at, but it's fascinating fascinating. And, you know, kudos to all these guys. Uh, the effects were like, fuck. And, you know, lot, uh, what, six, seven years later, a lot of these guys are working on Star Wars. You
0: know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, some you, of the other films we named specifically, like Silent Running, who was that, Trumbull? Trumbull, Silent Running, yeah. Star Trek, The Motion Picture, you know, a bunch of things.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Amazing. Amazing-looking film to this day. Cold. Yes. Sterile. But, I, I have to presume maybe spaces like that. You know, Bill Shatner just went into space and he was overcome. <laughs> no, I'm not laughing. Go for him. Go for him. And personally, I'm not laughing because he played an iconic character for de- decades. And
0: I know, but. It obviously it, moved him. Yes. You, you know, the fact that he's dealing with that shithead Bezos is another story. But nonetheless, he put his money up. He did what he had to do. And he definitely had an experience. You know, as somebody who's 90 years old, I guess you're getting close to, you know, making your peace with God or whatever. And, you know, seeing the Earth from where he saw it was clearly moving to him. So he definitely got something out of it. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it'd be wonderful. All of us get the chance to go into space, but it's not going to happen. Because if, op- no,
0: right.
1: <laughs> if the apocalypse comes, to be a big arc and we won't be
0: on it. Next film. All right, so next up, uh, he does A Clockwork Orange. I'm back. Okay. Three years later, uh, Kubrick delivers A Clockwork Orange, 1971. So Kubrick continues with his late 60s, early 70s relevance period with another vague knock on contemporary culture, this time less focusing a jaundiced critical eye on the peccadillos of the adult world than those of the youth counterculture. As opposed to the service veneer of the gentle hippies going to San Francisco with flowers in their hair and peaceful sit-ins in the summer of love, zeroes in on the violent undercurrent produced by listless teenagers with too much time on their hands and testosterone in their veins. At the time it manifested itself more in political insurgency like the Weathermen, the Panthers, and the anarchist crime and murder spree in Italy and France, but it's well known that the later punk scene took cues from and strongly identified with the Drugs in both aesthetic and in their pointedly anti-hippie focus on nihilism, ultraviolence, and destruction for its own sake. In fact, there are some issues in England with ostensible quote copycat cases because, you know, people always have to copy the worst aspects of any book or film and ignore all the messages. The film's plot is kind of thin on the ground. Malcolm McDowell of If and in Caligula Infamy, also Mr. Mary Steenburge, and you may recall there, hooking up during the entertaining H.G. Wells meets Jack the Ripper, time after time, is head Droog Alex. He and his three doofy buddies go around terrorizing ordinary folks, staging home invasions, auto collisions, and rapes just because they're nasty people. They even fight with rival gangs, and amongst themselves, while managing to retain some degree of plausible deniability, that keeps him from running afoul of the cops and truant authorities. Where things go sour is when the backup drugs want more money and better pay, effectively. Alex tries to fight them down and show him his boss, but when he ascends to a bigger money haul and manages to kill off a cat-loving erotic artificianato in the process, they turn on him and leave him at the scene helpless. Processed into the system, he thinks he's found an out by ascending to some experimental rehab where they show him violent and sexual imagery while being dosed with drugs and emetics that leave them unappealing. He left essentially a weakened, will eunuch He's released into the world only to face all his surviving victims one after the other. Parents have already given up on him and rented out his room. His possessions sold off and cops used to be his fellow drugs. Beaten down so badly he winds up back in hospital. He finds he's back to normal and presumably once he heals physically, he'll be back on the streets and perpetrating ultraviolence once again. On the one hand, the message is fairly simplistic. Behavioral psychology and conditioned behavioral modification, or worse, the idea of using electroshop and lobotomy to rehabilitate lifers and reintegrate them into productive members of society quote-unquote is both inhuman and asinine taking away freedom of action and will on the front end and failing to keep what few advantages are gained thereby on the back end but there's a much bigger picture here a commentary on society that's more slippery and uncomfortable in its implications and visually kubrick makes things stunning through use of high contrast the drug's world is often washed out white while the societal victims they go after even alex parent's kitchen tend to occupy brightly colored, vibrant spaces amidst the dull and empty whites and greys that surround them. Very pointedly in the latter case. In terms of subtle messaging, is this saying that Alex and Company are desperate to find what life they can, but can't manage to do so? And that so much of the world is in fact that of Alex and the Druze with the bright spots of success and until they enter and ruin it. Peace few and far between? So it's an interesting film. Not a fun film, not a likable film but interesting in some of its implications.
1: Oh, I, I agree with you on many points. Um, but for me personally, I, I think this is one of the most violent yeah. fucking films I've ever seen. Uh, still today, when I was young, younger, I don't think I'll ever recover from this one. Uh, my local theater had a double bill of Deliverance and The Clockwork Orange. And uh, <clears throat> they're both new films at the time. And I was like, Oh, I'll go see this. Hurt Reynolds, Malcolm McDowell, <clears throat> Clockwork Orange. Fuck. <laughs> I mean, if either one of those films didn't kill your psyche, I mean, I don't know why. Um, <clears throat> but Deliverance Aside was a very powerful film. I read the Anthony Burgess novel because I was very curious after seeing this movie what it was like. Mm-hmm. And it's still it's very difficult to read because Burgess wrote wrote this book. It's very slim, actually, it's not very big. And his uh, mixture of uh, a made-up Slavic English and Cockney thingy. Oh, the cut-up thing like he does, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the cut-up thing, and it's always hard to read. And it's a it's a colossary. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And, and if if you buy any of the good versions of the Anthony Burgess novel nowadays, they come with, you know, well, for years, they came with the glossary and dictionaries, like ridiculous, but if you're pretty smart, you can get around. So, <clears throat> you're right in so many key points, because it dealt with so many things. At the same time, it's so fucking violent and brutal. It's ugly. It's ugly. It's an ugly film. And <clears throat> in a way, in a way, pardon <clears throat> I me. Mean, in a way, this film is also responsible, indirectly, I have to say, for a lot of the mean-spirited films that came out of Europe in its wake. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to make a pretty big statement here now. I think without A Clockwork Orange happening, I don't think we would have saw it. Cannibal Holocaust. I don't think we would have saw... Straw Dogs. Uh, straw last Dogs. Last House in the Left. Last House in the I don't, we, him. Him. Yes. Yeah. I don't think we would have... That's been Thank you, yes. They treated terror. I don't think we would have saw a lot of these nihilistic, mean-spirited. spirit Although the directors would say, would say something else, wouldn't they? Especially in later years. Oh, I just wanted to entertain. <laughs> yeah, I got it. But there are some mean-spirited films, particularly coming out of Italy, influenced by this movie. Hedgehog, <clears> Hedgehog. Damn. Uh,
0: but – What was the one with Joe D'Alessandro, the Italian one, was uh, when they went up to the house on the, the mountainside? Gosh, so Yeah, I know what you're saying. There's, there's uh, another one, too, that I'm thinking. It might have been Diodato with Hess and John Morgan in it.
1: Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: and and So many of these damn things, yeah, you know.
1: The one with uh, John Morgan and Hess, where they went to the house of the... Uh, Annie Bell,
0: yeah. Annie Bell. They were like nuns or, or whatever. Something no, they much. weren't nuns. It was the uh, They were rich, basically, I and mean, these guys are poor. And they broke in and started screwing around with them, and then it turns into a nasty home invasion thing.
1: Oh, yeah. God, that was even... That was like the epitome of like, if you thought last house on the left was worse, let's notch it up.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I think it all came from this. And it also yeah. says why and a lot of the kids nowadays, they have no idea, you know, because the parents are all like, you know, whatever, helicopter parents and shit nowadays. So they're not going to tell them. But they, they all think like, oh, yeah, I'm a punk rocker because I listen to Rancid or, you know, yes. some 41 yes. or whatever the fuck, you know, Good Charlotte. And like, no, there was a reason that the original punks, everybody was scared of them. It wasn't because they were so, like, macho or whatever. It's because they were fucking crazy because these were people that were deliberately out to shock and took their aesthetic and their ethos and their philosophy just right at core from this fucking film. <laughs> exactly. So the Droogs were exactly, a big thing. I see guys going around just like Druids. It shows. Even as a kid, I remember that. I mean, come on. A Clock Like Orange, in a way, is the origin of punk. Yes. It's the origin of punk. Which says a lot. So.
1: <laughs> it says a lot. It says a lot. Y'all, these guys, five or six guys, swaggering. Yeah. In their white overalls, carrying big sticks alongside of a pool, that very familiar image, beating a hell out of, of people, raping, general carnage. It's just a lot.
0: I ran into a fella in New York years ago. It was at a, some comic show there or something. And I was wearing my uh, dead boy shirt, thinking a lot snotty when I wore the shit out of and I still have it, so still wear it a lot. And he comes up and he says, Oh, man. I remember them from back in the day. Those guys were the real deal. <laughs> I mean, you know, th- that's the difference. You don't get that kind of stuff now. Things were crazy back then. I mean, it might not always sound like it on record because music has moved to more extremes, if you will, but, you know, it was a different culture, and it was not necessarily a nice, friendly, and welcoming one. So, like, oh, look, everybody's differently abled can be uh, part of our little love circle. <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs>
1: So. <laughs> and there's so much going on in this film, because, like, uh, uh, you know, when 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 uh, when Malcolm's character Alex goes to the record store, he meets a girl. She's going to have a tryst with, and you know, he's he's going, he's thumbing through the vinyl, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh, there's some big one." It. Yeah, Hmm. Interesting choice. Who's a, who's a composer? Oh, Wendy Carlos, who became Walter. story. But, uh, a I, very, very dark, fucking brutal, brutal film. And, and, and it's funny in a way how, even though he starred in Caligula, um, but he's done some good work. Oh yeah. Um, you know what I'm going to say? Um,
0: but well, he's very defined by this picture, too. Yeah, he's defined by this picture. Poor
1: Michael McDowell. He's still alive, by the way, and still making occasional appearances. Thank God the guy's still around. I mean, lesser people that would turn you into a freaking nutjob, you know? <laughs> Interesting cast, too, because the majority of the people in this film, Kubrick didn't pick from his normal uh, uh, group of actors that appear in other of his movies. This is primarily British cast. And, you know, uh, we have Dave Prowse as the muscular Julian member taking care of uh, Patrick McGee, Patrick McGee, Uh, Warren Clark, a beloved British character actor, Um, Carol Drinkwater, Steve Burkoff, you know, some theatrical and film name, Adrian Corey. But this is one fucked up brutal movie. And I think it came out in America with an X. Self-imposed X or imposed or X. and for years it was it was snipped a little bit to an R, then came back. It's just it's it's a rough movie to to watch, but yeah, it's it's a precursor for so much in other genres and music. Mm-hmm. And although musically, there's nothing in here that would say rock. Oh hell no, so fake. <laughs> it's all Beethoven, yeah. But it's it's but the, the the implications are there enough that which is funny, which is funny because punk and new wave, which which adopted a lot of the look and feel of this film, totally denied an extricated classical music. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: It much less to say, classical rock. Oh yeah, they're totally going against like you know, the prog rock and stuff like that. And the fact that it was moving towards classical, was like those pompous assholes and back there with the fancy clothes and the big old stages and not getting near you.
1: Right, right, right. So comprehensive go... music that you
0: can't play. You know, fuck that. Three down chords.
1: To, right. They would go down to the basics. But like, hey, the movie you're taking as your
0: in quotations
1: Bible. Right.
0: Visually. That's what it's driven by That's, Beethoven. <laughs> the violence is driven Beethoven. by
1: Beethoven Yeah, you know, Come on! But uh, it's a brutal, you know. Hey guys, if you watch, rewatch this film today. It's brutal. Yeah. It's 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 rough. Although I will say, I will say this. I see a lot of movies. I see a lot of movies in preparation for this show because we 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 often agree. Okay. We're going to take this subject or this genre. We're going to do this show. It's just such and such time to record. But on my own, I see a lot of stuff. And you. and and you know who, and you might disagree, which is cool. But if there's one director that I, that I could say that was uh, maybe visually very much influenced by this movie and occasionally brings it over is Tarantino. Really?
0: Yeah, I, I, some of the... I can see the ultraviolence. I'm not sure what the...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm saying the ultraviolence. Tarantino is one of the few directors I've seen to successfully, not them saying I approve this, folks, to successfully recreate that feeling of, oh my God, gut-wrenching, yeah. you know? And, and there's very few Tarantino films that I've seen that don't have moments like, Damn, this is like a clockwork
0: girl. It's nasty. Well, remember, he was doing it previously as a screenwriter for uh, people like Oliver Stone. Like, was that? Uh, Natural Born Killers. So there was a couple of those that were in similar aesthetic.
1: No, no. I mean, uh, he's good as a, as a director. I, I do have a handful of movies I really, really enjoy. Not this entire thing, of course. But I, I would say, like, he's one of the few people I could say he got it, but it's a nasty part of Kubrick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> He managed to translate into his style, in quotations, you know, like everybody's style. A classic film, a great film. There's nothing like it. But that being said,
0: wow. (laughs) (laughs) So another four years later, despite planning a film on Napoleon, of all people, Kubrick Nix wound up heading a very uncharacteristic direction when he took on William Makepeace Thackeray's Barry Lyndon. How a tale of a strident Irish punter who leads with his fists and always seems to land on his feet came out of Napoleon, I'll never know, but there you have it. A young, goofy-looking Ryan O'Neill, here looking a whole hell of a lot like every man porn hero Tom Byron, holds to (laughs) that (laughs) old... That's good, good. Tom would like that. I'm actually friends with him on Facebook. (laughs) Holds to the old backwards adage, if you can't keep it in your pants, keep it in the family, by boffing a weird-looking older cousin who clearly groomed the guy into it. Unfortunately for them, the family is flat-busted, so she courts, of all people, Reginald Perrin himself, Leonard Rossiter again. The expected difficulties to sue until the brash O'Neill guns down the nervous Rossiter in a duel. Faced with jail, he runs off, promptly falling prey to highwaymen and being broke, and he winds up enlisting in the Army. When his best pal is gunned down and he discovers the duel was fake, he pulls another scam, impersonating an officer delivering messages across the front lines to get out of the service. So, of course, he winds up getting recognized and blackmailed into joining the opposition army, where he saves some high muck and This gets him in a cushy job that nations police after the war, and from there winds up as partner to a huckster card sharp who may also be a spy. And on it goes until he marries up, and things start going sour. You get the idea. What's weird about this is that the original novel is by all accounts sort of jokey and lighthearted, but there's precious little of that sensibility in the film version. There's also been much made of the costumes and lighting and how painterly it all is, but while it's certainly visually sumptuous, only the more vibrant and darker palette separates it from nineties critical darlings like those awful Merchant Ivory films or the tripier Peter Greenaway ones. There are a few names involved like Andre Morell, and some Hammer Fame, Ferdy Main, Patrick McGee, and Marissa Berenson, and Killer Fish, Cabaret and SOB, but those aren't exactly marquee toppers. It's a lush production, but we've seen both more memorable, Herzog and Kinsey's Noferatu, for example and bigger in scale and budget like the aforementioned 90s films. While visual, it's no more standout than those brief Victorian erotic things used to show laid down at Cinemax, I'd rather spend the three hours watching a pair of Barakczyk films, or even Amadeus, which at least never felt this dire.
1: (laughs) You'd rather watch Amadeus?
0: No, it's okay. (laughs) Actually, Amadeus is
1: not bad, and we should do a show on those kind of movies. (laughs) Ah, why not? We have to show our... uh... Only if we can throw in Barakchik. (laughs) <laughs> well, tech is difficult, because I know, he's, going all, over he's place. all over the place, and he's very soft-focused. And uh, anyway, Barry Lyndon, over three hours long. And surprisingly, I thought, personally, Ryan O'Neill was not bad, personally. No, I, I didn't think Ryan O'Neill was bad.
0: I, I just goofy. <laughs> well... <sighs> But by this time, you know, he's... he's I kept not... expecting Tracy Lords to pop out of the woodwork. Remember that? Tommy's being involved I, with her. <laughs> Jesus.
1: No, I thought... Come on, man. I thought <laughs> Ryan O'Neill wasn't bad. And, and no, Kubrick, known for his, by now, multiple reshots, I'm sure was really rough. Ryan O'Neill had just come off of, or was going to go work for Norman Mailer Norman on his one and only directorial film, which... It's a piece of shit. But um, I'm sure really this was like the big thing for him. And I don't know though, because it's a... So so the movie was lit. was photographed. John Olcott again. And primarily all candlelight for anything that was not outdoors. So I, I guess Cooper came across this idea. Like, well, it's supposed to take place in, uh, I don't know, whatever, eighteen, seventeen, something But shooting candlelight. Okay. And it, it probably was a bitch to shoot this thing. And I'm sure it took numerous, numerous, numerous retakes to get the lighting right. And um, I think it was delayed a couple times uh, because they, they, like, they had to edit this movie which the budget in today's standards is only $12 million, but you're making a period piece with someone who's not exactly a top-of-the-line marquee idol, and his prime was Love Story about maybe eight years earlier, but mm. primarily a European-supporting cast, and it's a costume film. So... It's like well, okay, it's it's really watchable. It's more more watchable than you would think, and it's it's beautiful. Actually, I think seriously, I think that Barry Lyndon, the Kubrick film, is more watchable than something like Fellini's Casanova. Uh, yeah, that's
0: true. Casanova was pretty hard to watch.
1: Casanova's is hard to watch, and, and and if we're gonna watch a custom film with varying. Uh, the three Musketeers films we've all read. Why do you like the first one as an enjoyable adventure? So I'll leave it to that. A um, terrific adventure, but, but but Barry Lyndon is fun in a way. It's very serious, and it's very oh, it's funny. You mentioned the Merchant Ivory films, did you not? And it's got this heavy, heavy, dramatic uh, sense. Sensibility, sensibility about it. I think that hurt the film. That's the problem
0: with it. If it felt more like the Three Musketeers films, if it felt more like even going forward to something like Emma, you know, maybe, maybe. that would have been more suitable to it. But it just comes off dire. i like, no, this isn't yeah, kind of film. You're right. You're right.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Terrence Malick's The part of
1: Kessel, The film looks beautiful. It's almost in a way like, okay, Stanley Kubrick handed in this three-hour film again that that he rewrote based on the Thackeray source and had in the usual cast, which I think he, they pulled off, you know, and sh- decided shooting and natural lighting. Who the fuck does that? Day and now, y'all, you know, really. Come on. Where in the world is CGI now? Like, we're going to shoot in candlelight. Okay. <laughs> What are you, nuts? What, what <laughs> drug do you want? You know? But beautifully, beautiful it looks. Aesthetically, it's fine. But it's it's, it's a big puzzle. It's a yeah. puzzle. Much like the rest of his freaking
0: cinematography, yeah. you know. Much of his career, actually. <laughs> ah,
1: coming next is the, the biggest, weirdest movie.
0: Yeah, I again, out of nowhere. What the hell's he thinking here? Five years later, The Shining one of Kubrick's most universally loved films and one of his strangest. Stephen King, populist trash horror novelist whose grotty looks at rural New England small-town life and the terrors of frustrated interpersonal relations have captivated the nation for decades, here drops a strange tale of alcoholism and child abuse and the effects on the mind of severe isolation. While all things point to a tale of mental breakdown and a troubled marriage, being King we get a pseudo-ghost story and some abject nonsense MacGuffin to distract from the main narrative that really plays no part in the proceedings. This time it's a doofy psychic power in the soup bowl haircut sporting, big wheels riding brat son who has an imaginary friend in his mouth, who talks in a death metal croak when he waggles his finger, sees ghosts, and gets vague premonitions of impending death. It's absolutely useless other than to bring in yet another king trope, the crazy old man with a connection of some kid or teen, in this case Hong Kong fool himself, Scatman Crothers, who also has this psychic predilection, which he calls The Shining. It's absolutely useless and bears little or no relevance to the plot, but there you go. At least you know it's a King adaptation. A small cast production for all its expansive, wide-angle feel and an enormous 1920s-style hotel setting. This one's essentially all about Jack Nicholson amping up his crazy shtick from five easy pieces against Shelley Tuval amping up her oddball persona otherwise seen in oddities like Popeye, Time Bandits, and Tale Theater to new Paranoid Heights. Crothers gets to act mildly concerned, the kid alternates between freaking out at all the weird goings-on and being a total freak himself, while Jack drifts in and out of a dream world where he visits a flapper-era dance hall and gets drinks in the house from a creepy old bartender, someone akin to Reggie Nalder, but without the wartime scars, and chats with a server who's actually the former caretaker who also went nuts and hacked up his family. It's not really a horror film, because it's not scary. Hell, it doesn't even qualify as a slasher film, as it takes forever for the lead to flip out and he really only kills one guy and goes after two others. So what the hell is this? About the closest you can say is it may be a sort of ghost story, though, not so much in a traditional sense, because you can argue it's a sort of malevolent horn of resort film, but only during occasional winter shutdowns? None of the other staff seemed to be affected. Years went by before this last guy did this disaster. Even Daval sees one former bloody resident, a gusher of blood, and a room full of skeletons. So it's not just Jack and the psychics. The use of vibrant color before a camera movement worthy of Argento and really impressive use of a fairly static and limited setting are all quite impressive and certainly do attest to Kubrick's involvement and strengths, but Jack overacts horribly, Duval does little more than freak out throughout, and the kid is a kid actor and a young one at that. Let's put it this way, you probably remember it being a hell of a lot better than it actually is, particularly if, like most of us, you've first seen it in your childhood or early teens, when it may have had more of an impact. Nowadays, honestly, it just seems kind of cheesy.
1: Well, I saw this in the theater when it first came out uh, opening weekend, and it was long. <laughs> it's a Kubrick film, it's long. And I thought, I didn't know what to think. Because, uh, it's a difficult one to play with. Because I used to often vacation to Maine personally. And I I would see a lot of these big open places and uh, hotels and so on. You know, King lived and still lives in Maine. So, you know, one of his great inspirations is where he comes from and where he lives. And uh, I did, yeah, I agree with you that Nicholson should have not come out of the gate being a little edgy. I think, I think knowing Kubrick, and I don't. But knowing knowing his style, I th- I thought it would have been a better idea to have him segue into that edginess. But he didn't do that. So he had he had Jack right away when he meets the realtor. If you remember, if you watched the film recently, you know Jack meets the realtor and he's already edgy. I really need this job. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm like who the fuck are this guy? <laughs> and Their first few days and nights there, Jack's on edge. And Jack plays Edgy when he plays Edgy, like no one else, but I was like, you wouldn't invite him to your house even if he was your best friend. Come on. (laughs) I want a beer. No, I want another beer.
0: Yeah, it's like okay,
1: okay, I'm gonna go to store man. What do you what do you give me a list?
0: Make me a chicken salad sandwich, keep the chicken, stick the basic between your knees. (laughs) oh my god
1: that was Christopher Lee first time I ever interviewed him he was like you stay here I sent you the other guy for chicken salad sandwich or mayonnaise he can't find it but I want you to stay with me okay <laughs> <laughs> um that's true true story but all that being said it's a weird movie it's visually strange it's
0: antiseptic it's all blown out whites. For the most part, it's... it's it's. He takes the novel's few scary scenes and really emphasizes them and films them in a gorgeous way that you will not forget. But, you know, there's so few of those and the film is so confused and the acting is so over the top everywhere and it's just... I don't know, it's, it's, it's not a horror film. It's not a ghost story. It's not a slasher film. It's... But it's a little bit of all of them, and I don't know.
1: I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a very puzzling movie. Uh, it's a very puzzling movie to uh, die. die, uh, die it's uh, it's a very puzzling movie to uh, ascertain what was going on, where it's going, what the hell. I mean,
0: yeah, because the logical explanations—it's all in his head. He's just having a breakdown. Yes. It gives a drunk yes. again, and there you go. The oppressive atmosphere gets to him. You know, because he's yes. by himself. I guess, but then yeah. why <laughs> this nonsense about the shining with the stupid kid why does the wife see some of these ghosts and shit no i,
1: I, I always thought it was
0: obviously haunted i mean it's my personal opinion yeah so was like what the hell i don't know
1: <laughs> and you know what it's funny thing is uh, jack didn't work for like a few years after this Shelley Duvall, poor actress uh felt psychologically
0: damaged but film. Yeah, she dropped off for a while, and when she came back, she was doing that fairy tale theater thing for kids, yeah. and that was it for the rest of her career. Yeah, and
1: then, and then even in the recent years, she was like, I fucked up, and you know, I all uh, oh, kudos to Shelley. I hope she gets better, and I hope this wasn't a thing that led to her condition. Diane Johnson, who was Stanley Kubrick's gal at the time, and until his death does screenplay with with him I don't think Stephen King liked this movie but maybe he came around I don't know it's a strange movie it's also very depressing even though yes. a lot of it doesn't work mm-hmm. it's so antiseptic it's so alienating it's very depressing because if you okay if you had a breakup so, so here's the thing that Kubrick is really good at and I don't know why what his intentions were at the time. Stanley Kubrick is very good at some things and I'm not quite sure what what they were especially regarding his film. If you had a breakup maybe Stanley Kubrick had a romantic or emotional breakup around this time, he he put that in the film in a particular manner. And and but this other what was what was it which is not in the book? What was the thing with the fairies? Mhm. You know, which is that you know, that sort of like other group of people who like to dress up as cute animals giving blowjobs. You saw that, right? <laughs> so what's up with the furries? And, and and did we really need to have that gruesome butchering of the caretaker? No. I have not seen Dr. Sleeps, which is like the 40 years later version of this, it's mm-hmm. the sequel by somebody else. You know that. And Dark to Sleep, which is two years old, directed by, by I don't know. And it's longer than The Shining <laughs> with and McGregor, who I actually quite like. But it takes, it takes up the story of Danny as a 50-year-old.
0: It, it's a tough movie. It's a tough movie. Um, and it's not atmospheric, you figure, most horror films. Especially set in the middle of winter and everything, there'd be a lot of claustrophobic feel. A lot of it's a huge hotel. The sets are expansive. It's like being in two thousand and one all over again. Yes, yes. I mean, I can't think of that as being claustrophobic for anything. It's agoraphobic. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's nobody else there. But, but... don't you think in a way it's
1: uh, he succeeded? He made a huge hotel become agoraphobic. All right, full metal jacket.
0: Oh well, yeah, I dreaded having to tackle this one. Okay. So, now, I don't want to bring everybody down, and I'm about as far from a snowflake type as you're likely to find, but as someone who quite reluctantly has come around to the fact that, uh, yeah, I think I had an abusive childhood at the collective fault of many adults and peers, mainly discovered by correlating my own instinctual reactions and relations to others to those of survivors of abuse and PTSD, but I have enough stories that I actually wrote an unpublished autobiography about it, even before many more long-forgotten, if not repressed memories, came back in the 15 years since. But, yeah, this was rough. And worse, I had a close friend who flipped out and had a very public falling out with me who used to be a Marine. This guy was a lefty when I knew him and bore a very traditional clinical PTSD from his experiences in the Corps, during which he was assigned some morally compromised black ops in South America, Central America, that he dropped some hints about ugly stuff. He seemed particularly haunted by the people he killed who may or may not have been innocent civilians and who may or may not have been by hands-on methods. We'll leave it at that. He was also experimented on, like most folks in the military, during certain desert operations, to the point where he had to make a choice and get an operation that precluded certain life events most people take for granted. As he often put it, when you sign up, your own body doesn't belong to you anymore. You're government property, and if you get sick, they can find and punish you. But regardless, he was extremely conflicted between his beliefs and his experiences, the disparity between who he wanted to be and who he had been. And I feel a lot of, let's be honest, I, I feel some tearful late-night phone calls from this guy where he'd gotten drunk and he'd beat the living shit out of some clueless kids, and he was horrified because, you know, the military instincts, he was like, God, i got to kill these guys, you know, I didn't, but, you know, and he'd been through several marriages also apparently because they couldn't take his nightmares and his emotional flips that he kept going through. And when we did eventually fall out, he was with one particularly manipulative specimen we tried to warn him about, whose right-wing family left him back in flag-waving mode, all Stockholm Syndrome, Semper Fi, and nothing to forgive, and I'm going to drive from Texas to take you out. with well, this guy you never knew. So That's the first hour of this fucking movie in a nutshell. There's no build-up, there's no dramatic motion, there's no cause and effect. It's just a fucking hour in hell of non-stop bullying, ego-stripping, dehumanizing through denial of the individual or the multicultural nature of the world this shithead drill sergeant screams racist, misogynist homophobic crap non-stop and rapid fire into these guys' faces while forcing them to assent and calling them women, pussies, and homosexuals for doing so And as typical of my own experience, it puts you in the center of their unwanted attentions. The only thing these assholes respect is those who are the balls to stand up to them, which at least to some extent Matthew Modine's Joker does. And he even gets a sort of promotion for doing so. And that's true. You know, these assholes will respect you when you stand up to them, but you're still right there in the line of their sight, and you're going to take a lot of shit for this. On the other hand, the slow-witted fat guy of the troop, who he renames Gomer Pyle, becomes his main target even pulling that bullshit these that doing grammar go where the entire troop takes punishment for everyone his screw-ups so then they start hating him and abusing him as well so despite joker taking over to train this guy in the basics he winds up flipping out and kills both the sergeant and himself deservedly so in case a sergeant but yeah that's the first hour of this fucking thing so if you've gotten through and remember there's no build-up there's no dramatic anything it's just this abuse after abuse after abuse until the guy breaks Honestly, if you've gotten through this solid hour of manipulation and abuse in the name of national defense, there's nothing else to see here. The second half is some of these guys in Vietnam years later losing the last bits of their individual consciousness and morality until even Joker has to cross the last inner line of break. It certainly blows holes in all this Bush through Trump era nonsense about heroes and thank you for your service. Fuck you. About the only positive about this film and what it's saying is that war is a beast that demands animals and the staff of unthinking murderous monsters you have to build a system of hateful abuse and self-destruction that there's ultimately no coming back from. Those instincts to obey without question to accept those who don't even acknowledge humanity and worth as an individual human being as they who must be obeyed is little more than fascism or communism two poles of totalitarian rule that meet at the same spot authoritarianism with no rights or freedoms and misery for all. Fuck this movie. Fuck everything he was trying to say here. I hated this thing. For, for, for a movie you hated,
1: brother, you, you sound like it's a very good film because it seemed to have hit oh.
0: so many nerves yeah. with you. Yeah. It's dumb. My nerves are ringing right now. Yeah, you know,
1: no, no, <laughs> I have to say, like, don't, don't mind me, but I can, I can hear you saying you hate this film, but also hit so many nerves with you. Oh, if that's the intention, then, yeah, issue Yeah, then it worked. Why would you want to? Um, <laughs> I, I have the strangest memory of this movie. It's, it's a weird one, actually. Uh, Ed Ross. Ed Ross, who was the, uh, uh, played Lieutenant Touchdown in, in the film. He was in, the, I don't know, Puppet Grammage Village, Cotton Club, Lethal Weapon, 48 hours, sequel. I actually acted with him on stage at Hunter College. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was an actor. Shh. Ed. And um, yeah, we went to a uh, mutual friend who used to do kung fu movies. That's another story. Ed. Yeah. And so Ed o. Ross says, you know, I'm working with Stanley Kubrick. He doesn't know what kind of music to have on the soundtrack for this. And, you know, he only knows this. Classical. So I sent Ed a bunch of suggestions. And they used them in the film, and I never got credited. Like fuck you, man. <laughs> uh, it's it's, it's honest to god, true story. So, full middle jacket. Do we need to be depressed again? And what's going on with Stanley Kubrick? I mean, do people want to go for a three hour like depressive thought?
0: <laughs> and what was the point of that first hour? There's no there's no dramatic build. It's not a story.
1: No, but it's just an hour in hell. It's a very weird hour in hell. It's all very. Dislocated and it's edited in such a bizarre manner that like here, here's a scene, here's another scene, here's
0: another scene. It's not like edited in a normal manner. Yeah, and it's actually a nightmare. Literally in terms of how you experience a nightmare, where it's just little flashes and symbols that your brain puts together as if it was moving.
1: I'll tell you, like poor Vincent D'Onofrio, y'all. You know, yeah. He he should have got every accolade that they have out there for giving this guy, young actor at the time, anything and all that they got. Because if they really believe in giving awards for good acting, that guy should have got him. Because I'm sure it was rough, rough. And it looked like it was rough, you know. I felt for the guy. I I. Definitely. And you know, no question. Matthew Modine, who did, around this time period, other strange movies, like uh, Birdie, you know, and Adam Baldwin. You know, a, a lot of people joked about him, but back in the days of this film, uh, he just... Well, he was still a dick in this movie. <laughs> he was a dick, but he did interesting parts. Don't forget, he ended up on Firefly, one of our favorites. Yes, I did. And, you know, it's a lot of... Doesn't mean like that. Yeah, he's still, yeah, still being a dick, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I thought I got hired. Uh, it's a strange, alienating. This thing though, it's supposed to be, a, it's supposed to be an anti-war film about Vietnam. Am I correct? Right? Yeah. But shot because because Kubrick didn't want to leave London at the time, which was his home ground. Was mm-hmm. shot in the decaying factories that were never never reconvened during the Blitz. And you know the funny thing is, I had no idea parts of London were never rebuilt. Yeah, because I thought by then. Yeah, right. You think like by, by forty years by nineteen eighty something, fucking London would have done something. Come on, what the fuck? Get the Queen off the juice. That's today's news. Queen's drinking as right, much as her doctor. doctors. Like look, she's like one hundred and forty years old. Um, <laughs> hey, if it keeps her healthy. Anyway. That's it. Here's a shit with that All right, There you go. But no, seriously, he did not want to leave London. He found some places that were butts that were not rebuilt. I'm like, are you kidding me? And they shot there. And we wouldn't know. But I don't know. It's rough. It's almost, it's hard to watch. It's mean, it's not like Clockwork Garns, which is brutal.
0: No, no, this is really just a completely different animal. You've never seen anything like yeah, this. Yeah, completely different animal. I mean, I think its biggest claim to fame is that two-life crew sample that Me So Horny does. <laughs> Yeesh. So now we come From up the with hookers. your favorite film. Well, you know. Anyway, go ahead, go for it. Here we go, a decade plus later. It's about 12 years later now. Kubrick's career closer was, appropriately enough, a kick to the balls of all the film snobs who had spent their careers sniffing around his ass like a pack of dogs, because it was apparently quite confusing, disturbing, and ambiguous to contemporary audiences, and the Hollywood establishment, with the studio forced to digitally censor and edit numerous scenes just to get into theaters with a hard R. It got reviews that were all over the place, with the ostensible elites falling all over themselves, trying to find out how to be nice to their hero, while expressing their distaste and abject loss as to why he'd go out on such a film. But the best part of this, he even intended to film this project from near the beginning of his career. Yes, we're talking about eyes wide shut, people. Seriously, while he was considering making this, albeit in very different forms, since before 2001, the movie, so we're talking back in the 60s, at the time with visions of a Woody Allen-style sex comedy with grim overtones. Love and death, God-style? Who knows? But the already dark, sexual, occultically inclined, and nihilistic 90s proved to be the perfect point in time to create a work quite this grim and pointed, which draws from ancient conspiracy theory nonsense like Umberto Eco and The Da Vinci Code, as much as it does Freud, from the weird occult horror mystery of the later Heath Ledger film The Order, as much as the heyday of the gothic fetish community scene, and elements of the vampire and decadent aesthetic touched on by series like Forever Night in the works of Anne Rice. There's really no way this film could have existed in the sixties, seventies, or eighties, much less under the disinfined pallidity of the last twenty-two years. One more fascinating tidbit here. Perhaps Kubrick was tapping into some unspoken undercurrent here, as the chilly couple whose yearning to stray caused so much of the film's troubled events were in fact an actual decade-long married couple at the time, though that wouldn't last much longer after making this film. Gazing into the abyss, or did Kubrick suss out the writing on the wall? Either way, one thing certainly didn't outlast the film, namely Kubrick himself who died six days after screening the final cut with Warner execs and the two leads. There's a feeling of fate hanging over this film on many levels, most of which it suggests more than spells out. It's a powerful film, let's leave it at that. So people aren't really even sure how to classify the damn thing to this day. Is it a -a Skinamax-style erotic thriller? Well, no. Because while it's kinky and there's a lot of skin on display here, I mean, you get to see that Kim does in fact have a nice ass in case you were wondering. This is not the kind of film you want to bring a date to, or to warm you up for an eventful evening later. If anything, it's like a bucket of ice water. So is it a horror film? No, though it bears elements thereof. Is it even explicitly occultic, like Bruce Dickinson's Chemical Wedding, a.k.a. Crowley, or the aforementioned The Order? Well, no, though the undercurrent here is so strong as to be surface text. There's certainly a lot of dangerous secret society, complete with costumes, masks, and a weird ritual giving way to orgiastic sex and a prevailing sense of doom that follows each and every one of our characters through the course of events. Many die, others simply disappear with suggestions that they may also be dead due to their betrayals of the group's secrets. And there's a very sordid element to all these rich and powerful people participating in such clandestine affairs, sworn to secrecy and bound to it in ways that are not entirely voluntary or comfortable, much less possible to walk away from. So yes, it really is, but no one wants to acknowledge it as such, and in many ways, that's played down and left as a background element to the proceedings otherwise. At core, the film is all about relationships and sexuality, and the problems that ensue when one partner is entirely honest with the other. Think about it. After attending a posh party where each of them is tempted to sneak off for a quickie with a stranger or a pair thereof, Dr. Tom Cruise's wife, Nicole Kidman, who were a real-life couple at the time, gets high and lets slip about how her recent vacation nearly led to her running off with a random stranger who gave her the eye, simply because she was horny and felt unfulfilled in her role as wife and mother. She goes into such explicit detail about what appears to be little more than a weird fantasy about the stranger that Tom winds up wandering the city streets after fending off a random pass from a deceased friend's daughter, his waker Shiva, and on a whim goes along with an unrealistically stunning young hooker to her place, though he once again begs off before consummating the act. A chain of highly sexualized events on the same evening leads to him discovering and infiltrating a mysterious party of the rich and powerful, among whom are a few folks he knows, which turns into a huge mass orgy and pairings off Thelemic or Hellfire Club style. One of the masked women warns him off, but he's nonetheless exposed and subject to some fearsome sounding punishment that demands he strip and likely involves him being the subject of an enormous intergender gangbang, if not worse. Luckily for him, the mystery girl offers herself in her place, and they let him go with a warning. The next day, he discovers certain items of his costume are missing, and that those who inadvertently led him to the event, including the mystery girl, who turns out to be a girl he saved from an OD at the start of the film, have been shuffled off and done away with. Even the hooker from last night turns out to have been a close call. She's just got diagnosed with AIDS. His last surviving friend gives him another warning, and he returns home to find his missing master the other night on a pillow next to his sleeping wife. He breaks down and confesses the events of the last few nights, and despite a bit of a rocky chat about the future, it closes on a guardedly optimistic note when she tells him that there's only one thing they need to do as soon as possible. Fuck. Damn, what a film to go out on. It's a real kick in the teeth, particularly if you were expecting a standard erotic thrill along the lines of The Red Shoe Diaries or Berlusconi's Valentina series or what have you. In place of casual consequence, free sex as harbinger of freedom and mystery, Kubrick delivers a low blow that champions not so much fidelity as the necessity of keeping one's fantasies to themselves, for fear of losing the very relationships we have, and how dangerous and foolhardy strain could be. The real crux of this isn't so much the threats of the secret society as all the perversions of the various folks' Cruz encounters, from Alan Cummings' frustrated gay hotel clerk, who really thinks he's got a shot with Tom, and his distaff analog at the Shiva, who Cruz barely knows, though she acts like she's been desperately passionate for him forever, to the old shyster at the costume shop who pulls a call-the-cops scam with two Japanese businessmen and his Helen Hunt-looking daughter, only to, quote, come to an arrangement with them by the next morning, that leaves all parties satisfied to the many running occultists of the unidentified gathering. It's like Fulchi's New York Ripper Without the Killer, and at least partially reworked as a higher-level society, a more Sodian one either way sex is intrinsically intertwined with and consequence even within the societally restricted confines of marriage where a confession of deeds considered but unacted upon can cause so much fucking trouble and potential fatality it's seriously the entire film all this chaos that happens all hails from kidman's jealousy and drunken whim flirtation with that guy at the party and her confession of the vacation experience that never went anywhere so think about that fantastic picture and as much as die hard it's a new york city christmas film <laughs> <laughs> i love this fucking movie i mean yeah it's chilly it's icy it's grim it's dire and full with consequence but i love it <laughs> so you're now i reckon saying you
1: have a tom cruise movie that you fucking love
0: i loved another mission impossible when we said
1: that I know, recently I know. Fucking <laughs> it's a very good movie and you know i i mess with you a lot of times I would love to do a Tom Cruise show because he's got a lot of good stuff. And, and, that might be an idea. Huh? <laughs> yeah. That might be an he idea. That might be an idea because, you know, he's, he's uh, a character in, in
0: life but in, in this film and you get such great stuff to start off with like risky business and cocktail
1: hey risky risky <laughs> business club. you know cocktail you know <laughs> I, I have to say I was so curious about that bar and cocktail he supposedly worked at. I went to that bar yeah uh, what's it called I forgot the name of it it's like that uh, <laughs> it's in the lower East side of Manhattan folks so anyway to match what you said yeah it's it's I, I, you know no, you really spoke very eloquently about this and yeah i, I can't dent, take away or add to anything you said it's a very weird movie it's after being exposed to this 1999 the cusp of 2000 how much stuff have we seen on hbo and uh, cinemax at this time period that Kubrick would make a movie like this, where two stars, two Hollywood stars, would give their all
0: and more to make a film that's transgressive, and it broke them up. And it broke them. Up. Whatever you think about their relationship in the first place, I always thought it was kind of a beer relationship, anyway. But well, regardless, they were together for ten years, and then they were together this, and for that was ten it.
1: years, and and so around this time period, I had a friend I was uh, playing billiards with quite often who had a friend who was a German costume designer and working on uh, Mr. Cruz's film in Germany at the time. So, uh, 99, 2000, whatever. It could have been this movie, and don't know who knows. And he told me some stuff. And he said, you know what? At the end of the night, they wanted to make sure they got him home. So I will make that the safe version of the story. Because I really like Tom Cruise. Uh, mm-hmm. I've developed over the years... A great appreciation for him as, all oh, kidding aside, a, a great action hero. He's like fucking almost 60. I've never seen anybody run faster. i never seen anybody. Okay, I'll do it because the camera's going to be on me. All right, man. He broke his fucking leg. He broke his ankle. Now he wants to go in space, whatever. And he might be crazy. And I'm not even going to address the other things that we all know about. But, but this movie, this movie was a was a film uh, 1999, uh, twelve years ago, whatever. was a fascinating, fascinating film about a real marriage that was already, dare we say, fragile mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I mean, how did Nicole Cruz end up with the country guy from Australia? <laughs> Who I like. I like him. He's he's a fine he's a fine performer. But what? Well, she's so strong anyway, but, but still.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Anyway, but I've seen her make some weird, weird fucking movies, so we can't blame Tom. Uh, There was that movie where she fucked the whole town. I was like, <laughs> what was I watching? And this was like <laughs> three, four years ago. So I think Stanley Kubrick was maybe trying to tap into both these people
0: mm-hmm.
1: and both these people's psyche, and he delivered a very, very strange movie, um, which was not appreciated at the time. How can you appreciate the film? was not well-reviewed at the time of its release, but has uh, over, over the period since been regarded as a better film than it was. It's a weird film. It's a... Whenever you tackle subject matter like this, and Very few people have filmmakers in a major way, commercial filmmakers. Who has, right? Mm -hmm. With major stars, very few. So, whenever somebody has done this, they bomb. Mm -hmm. And this did not, well, we thought it would bomb, but actually did pretty well because the two names are associated. But then when people went to the theater, they were like, what is this?
0: <laughs> and the reviews were all over the place because half of the time they were trying to kiss Kubrick's ass because they love wow. Kubrick and it was an institution. And they probably liked the other you know, two actors too and they want to step on them. But then there was this whole thing of, oh, my God, what did I just say? <laughs> so it was like this bafflement and love-hate the and almost every review you saw, especially from the major, you know, the critical standbys of the time, you know, the Pauline Kales of the world and whatever the hell else, the Roger Eberts. It's actually amusing to look back and see this, like, wow, you really didn't know what the hell to say, did you?
1: (laughs) Wait, isn't it almost almost the thing with all the Kubik's films? They're almost, they're they're so strange.
0: They're almost indescribable. And um, they're, yeah, it's like... His meticulous visual flair is what saves nine-tenths of them. The overlong, if methodical, and relaxing pace draws you in. But some of them are really like, what am I watching and why? And other ones are like, well, that was really interesting. But well, what the fuck was that saying? <laughs> and that's, there's really no in betweens.
1: It's one or the so, other. So as as an outro, when Stanley Kubrick was very ill, and uh, of all people, he was corresponding with Steven Spielberg, one of your favorites, <laughs> and 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 he was corresponding with Steven Spielberg about Brian Aldiss short story that he wanted to make a movie, but he knew he wasn't doing well. Mm-hmm. So he asked Spielberg if he would make this a film. Well, that's like mind-blower, right? right. And, and, you know, so Spielberg made AI, which is uh, short for artificial it's intelligence. Awesome. Yeah. In 2001, And Kubrick died before that. And if you notice, the the production company is a Stanley Kubrick production. So technically, they conversed. uh, It's uh, as depressing.
0: And uh, if no one has ever seen AI, uh, it's... It was kind of considered a Spielberg flop. And that's probably why, because he was really a Kubrick film.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like a really a Kubrick film. It's about this... Like this child is a, uh, a prototype AI child for a family. But it's not alive. It's not a human. So you have the whole thing of alienation going on, which is a cubic thing. Alienation. You think about all the films we just talked about, and bizarre film. Also is long. It's probably one of Steven Spielberg's best films, but most unremembered because. People don't know what to make of it mm-hmm. and because it's a film he promised Kubrick he would make. And it's very strange. I remember I went to the theater and I sat there and I watched it and I walked out and I was very depressed. And and it ended with, for me, a very uh, fateful homecoming message because the very end of the film has something to do with Coney Allen. Uh-huh. So, there, it's very interesting. You know, Helly Joe Osmond, who came off of uh, Six Sense, who still looked like a human being at the time, <laughs> yeah, he was in that Jude Law, Francis O'Connor, Sam Robards, you know, William Hurt. But it's, it's a very good film, and and even those anti Spielbergian people out there, I would urge them to see AI and then get back to me because it's very. I hate to say, I did it at the outset. It's very Cooper Right? Watch a Stanley Kubrick film. And although he would be the last person I would think to to make a film with that style, with that feeling would be Spielberg. But uh it's probably one of Spielberg's best films. And so in closing I would say like the last Spielberg uh, last Kubrick film was made by Steven Spielberg. How weird is that? Uh but anyway
0: yeah, that's our show. All right, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on uh, Sally Kubrick. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or if you're a filmmaker or a musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. And, of course, we're on Podbean, thirdas We're also on iTunes. Just look us up under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes of the Goldmine Podcast. If you're particular, the ID is 553 Uh We're also on Spotify. We're on Amazon Podcasts. Again, look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes of the Goldmine Podcast. Who knows? We may even be other places next time we speak. Weird Scenes of the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network. Now on Podbean. Is there anything else you want to say at the closeout? Yes, yes.
1: I do want to say for all those watching uh, Halloween Kills... The latest edition of the Halloween franchise sees a sort of revisit of Donald Pleasant's Dr. Moments. We had done uh, a very extensive two part, yes. which I'm going link to
0: on Facebook uh, by tomorrow. We did a lengthy two part Donald Pleasant's tribute,
1: and uh, you could listen to us really talk a lot about it and uh, learn more about the man. So, uh, I'll be Yes, yes, yes. So anyway, thank you for listening. We always appreciate our listeners and we'll be back very soon. All right. Good night all. Good night.
0: Tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by Boardman committee. These are the province of the author, the Visionary, the Dreamer, the Outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture from the corporate to the individual every monday at 6 p.m eastern we take a not so serious look at the serious issues of the day whether it's politics economics social issues music or old movies and tv shows we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all hell you've got to have a sense of humor about life just look at the headlines So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At iLevel, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Poppa Network on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life.
1: I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. Where would Uncle Al be without a Scarlet Women, Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover?
0: Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the Yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality the dark side, and the light, from the organized to the out of the way.
1: This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling.
0: Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards light.
1: Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from the Unconventional Seeker.
0: Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment.
1: Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois
0: Hall, myself,
1: discuss the beloved, the cave, the career, and the wonderful world of cult
0: films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age.
1: Tune in. Turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television. Right here on rear seats inside the gold mine.
0: Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. It's funny, it says you are unavailable. And I was gonna ask you if my air conditioner was too loud it's, it's crazy, the heat came back today. I know, I know. I know. But uh, I'm hearing like really loud Chinese music on your side. <laughs> Sorry, I'm no, Hold on. <laughs> Chinese, it's, it's Zen sounds, man. That's it, it's like peepa and all that shit. <laughs> How do I sound? You sound fine.
1: It's been a week. Um, mm. I went to the doctor... There's no short version of this, so I, I'll try to make it short. My doctor had canceled the day before. Okay. I'm like, Are you fucking kidding me? I waited three weeks. Yeah. I uh, called him, Oh, we're sorry, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, No, I waited three weeks for this. It's like, I'm in pain. Come on. I need to see an orthopedist. Come on. And I called them like, Do you need surgery? I'm like, Nope. I hope I don't. Well, we're only doing surgeries. What? So I said, um, is there somebody who could just like see me and, and evaluate me? I don't know if any surgeries. <laughs> like what the fuck? <laughs> you no. Know, and and like well, we're only doing surgeries right now. And was this work related? Well, I don't know, man. It's working for fucking home. Who's that, Who's at the job? No, I didn't say it like that. But you know what I mean? <laughs> needless to say that was a complete bust yeah and so I called them back first told the guy can't see me I Said, okay when can he see me November I'm like really so I finally got in Hoboken because Jersey City they like not accepting anybody new or so I called but I really want to see somebody okay so it was just a two day wait I went down to Hoboken the guy was a character he was a young dude. Well, as far as I could tell, he had a mask. Yeah. He was like, oh, well, I'm going to shoot you with tarot. So help. I, I, I give it to myself. <laughs> you know, if I feel a twinge, no, it's good. You only you shoot yourself. I like, what the fuck. <laughs> He's like, if you feel great, you may not want to come back. But no, no. I, you know. So he, he, gave, he made me do a lot of, he gave me a, he talked to me in the office and he gave me a pretty decent evaluation
0: Yeah.
1: in the room, in the examination room. He goes, look, if you had sciatica, you wouldn't be able to do this. You wouldn't be able to do that. Right. So, should I get an MRI? He said, I'm not going to send you for MRI right now because you're not showing signs of this and that. Okay. I'm going to send you for an X-ray. Ah, okay. Okay. So I called the place that night, and I went over there, and that was, I couldn't do it online because they kept asking for my license plate number. I'm like, I do not drive. So I called them. They're pretty cool about it. It's like, we'll text you with the info. I never got the text. I had to call them back like, uh, I got T-Mobile. They suck. I don't, They blocked some texts. So, you know, what do I got to do now? Well, I just show up. <laughs> so I got there, and I said, I'm there. Wait for your text. I'm like, okay. So I just walked in at my appointed time, and got a bunch of x-rays, actually. Uh, so here, here's where I fucked up. It's, my, it's a shot he gave me. And it wasn't like, a, oh, I could do singing in the rain. No, <laughs> no I, I, it took like two days to feel better. And then the wife came back. Right. For her for a brief, one of her brief was, I want to go to this place. and like, it's a 20 minute walk. You know, I, I, I don't. Come on, it's not that far. <laughs> so I did it. And coming back, I'm like, I'm not a motherfucker. I yeah. know, why didn't you bring your cane? Because I wasn't feeling this way when I left. <laughs> and the next day, so I took apart the old desk. It wasn't too bad. The new one came 150 pounds. So I shimmied it up the stairs, okay. didn't feel too much anguish. Oh. Five hours. Halfway through the five mm-hmm. hour, putting it together. I people are like, I put it together three hours. Fuck you. You're, you're, you're a troll. <laughs> yeah, you, I read really the reviews of these things. Actually, it was well-reviewed. It's a nice piece. But halfway through, I went to get up from the floor. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, my cat's looking at me like, what's up? <laughs> so, yeah, I was listening to some music list, uh, last two months while I've assembling all this fucking <laughs> shit. I'm like, something, something's wrong. So, uh, put something on today and I'm like, something's wrong. Yeah. I look behind me, so woofer. Uh, my cat must have chewed the fucking subwoofer cable. <laughs> I'm like, are oh, you fucking kidding me? So I, I had to pull out the piece. And I'm like, do I really have to do this? I had to pull out the preamp, which is heavy. And then I found one, one good monster cable. I attached that, and I was like, oh my, this fucking thing gonna work, man. I'll tell you, it's one thing after
0: another. <laughs> wow, sounds like fun. Yeah. Sorry to hear all that.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's, it's, uh, it's very fucking. <laughs> but, uh, no, I really would like to. You want to test the audio on this? You just tell me how it sounds? Yeah, cool.
0: I, I can tell you right now that the music is way too loud, but I'm going to see how it sounds on the, on the oh, audio. Oh, is it too loud? Oh, yeah. Okay, wait, 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 wait. How
1: now? How now? Why?
0: Oh, no. That's no, good. Is that good? Oh, it's definitely better, yeah. Uh, but yeah, let me test the audio. And see how wait, right,
1: wait, wait, wait. No, because I, I just hooked all this stuff up again. How's this? Say 5.30. Testing,
0: testing. Is that good? It's still pretty loud, actually. Ouch. Ouch.
1: Ouch. Okay.
0: Because I mean, while you were talking, it was actually louder than you. And now it's like, okay, I can still hear it, but it's not blazing. Sorry, Whoa. you should tell
1: me.
0: There it is. It's loud again. Is it?
1: Yeah. How,
0: how's that? Well, every time you stop talking, it gets. <laughs> oh, the crazy music? It's, it's piano music or something. Right, 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 right. It's called mute. mute.
1: It's
0: like Richard Clayderman or some shit. Believe it or not,
1: it's
0: a music channel. How's that? Well, that is fun.
1: That's good? Yep. Okay, so I'll stay this far away.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God, the difficulties. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, off.
1: All right, can I test the last few minutes and let me know? All right. Okay, thank you.